Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're taking a look inside the working day of Rob Hart the author of the brand new dystopian novel The Warehouse. We talk about how his writing day is mainly influenced by his young daughter. Also, you can hear how the autobiography of a business tycoon gave him the inspiration for the main villain of his work. And genuinely, he will reveal to us the most fantastic idea for editing that I think I've ever heard. So I'll start out at the end of the book and then work my way forward. And and I think what that does is uh, when you start out writing a book, you've got all this fresh energy and you're all excited. And then by the time you get to the end, things can kind of peter out a little bit. So uh, I, I, I like to kind of invest a lot of that starting energy in the end. And it really does make a difference seeing the story in reverse. There have been over 70 episodes of this show now. And I promise what he says about editing, editing backwards, it's the best idea I've ever heard. Stick around, it's on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, hello! Um, my name's Dan Simpson, this is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a, a sneak peek through the working day of a successful author to try and steal some of their scheduling secrets. Uh, if you've not subscribed to the show yet, if you just kind of pick and choose which episodes you want to hear, uh, make sure you do properly subscribe through your favourite podcast app, then the show will automatically download and you do want to keep across it for the next few months. I've got an ever-growing list of some fantastic authors that are going to come on the show. I've been working through right at the start, a couple of years ago now, uh, when I made the, when I had the idea for the show, uh, I made... Uh, you know, a, a contact book kind of thing. Authors I simply have to have telling us about their writing. Uh, and you kind of forget about it, you know. Things come and go. I've gone back to that list in the last few weeks and I'm going to get some amazing guests on the show for you. So make sure that you do subscribe however you listen to your podcast. This week, uh, we've got the author Rob Hart all the way from America, managed to catch up with him in London, uh, talking about his brand new book, the dystopian novel The Warehouse, uh, which is very character-driven. It's got an incredible plot, but the characters are really what drives the story. It's all about three workers uh, at the warehouse of a company that kind of owns all of the business. They've suffocated everything else that's out there, which kind of means if you want to work, you have to work for this company. You can find out how it took him years to write 
and how, how much he thought about the very first sentence and why it took him so long to get it down. We'll also hear the initial idea that he had for the story, the autobiography of the business tycoon that really helped him get his ideas in place. Now, Rob has written six books so far. There were five in the Ash McKenna series. Uh, and it always, I always find it fascinating talking to a series author, particularly one who has managed to finish a series. You know, how do you know when's the right time to just leave this character alone? How do you plan stories across five novels we chat to rob about this uh, and also if he's happy to actually be writing standalones instead of having to slog away on a series every year uh, the new one as well it's gone down very well the warehouse it's been optioned uh, for a film by ron howard which must be just tremendously exciting for an author you've slaved away at a story and and to just imagine the success that it might have, it must be why he was in a pretty chipper mood uh, when we caught up. We'll also get a writing tip from a psychological thriller author, so make sure you stick around for that after we dive into it with Rob Hart and we start, as we always do, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I write in my attic in my house, so it's it needs a paint job really badly. It's a little dingy. But it's it's really comfortable and it's really quiet and it is the one place in the house that neither my daughter nor the cat is allowed inside. So it's it's just my own space and, and I love it to death. It's not got the paint job. Yeah. Tell me what you do see around you. What is on the walls? Have you got any paintings? Can you see out? Have you got a window that looks out upon anywhere? No, my windows look out uh, mostly on the houses next to us. But I do have uh, two very big whiteboards, uh, one that is freestanding and one I had used whiteboard paint uh, on, on the, 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 the ceiling is like slanted because I'm, I'm, you know, in the attic and I used whiteboard paint on the wall so that I can like plot out notes and stuff on, on the wall right above my desk. And the paint was incredibly noxious. Uh, I, I got a little high while I was applying it. And then the it's not very good because the markers, uh, they, they won't erase off it. So I have notes from a project above my desk that's like five years old at this point. Because <laughs> I really like working with a whiteboard. I'm a visual thinker. And I need to sort of draft stuff out uh, in terms of like drawing maps or sort of like plot points. And it just seemed like such a great idea. And, and yeah, as I was applying it, I was just, it, it, part of the problem is that the, the attic does not have good ventilation, mm. so uh, which is also a problem in the winter and the summer because during the winter there's no heat. Uh, and so I'm, I'm usually up there in like a bathrobe and a towel uh, and a, a blanket like freezing. And during the summer, it's just absolutely sweltering, which is probably the reason that the, the dry erase marker is like baked into the dry erase paint. <laughs> But uh, it's 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 maybe maybe there's a better version of it now because this is again a couple of years old. Talk to me about the desk that you're on. Um, old, rustic, new IKEA. How does IKEA, it look? IKEA table. I, I have uh, I have two IKEA tables sort of next to each other, and I have actually been thinking about getting a nice desk because uh, I I don't know if you have this this phrase here, uh, man cave. Yeah, and everyone who sees my office calls it my man cave, and I'm like, no, it's not a man cave. Because I don't, I don't buy into that weird, like hyper masculine stuff. So uh, it's it's my study, and I have I have a picture of an old ship, and I've got a a, a wooden globe that that, that I can keep uh, liquor in. 
you know, like I want it to be a little classy. So I'm thinking it's more uh, Hemingway than yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking of upgrading from the IKEA table to uh, an actual desk, something that looks a little bit nicer. So filling the walls, aside from your whiteboard paint and your hidden booze, uh, have we got books anywhere? Have we got book bookshelves, proofs that you've been given? What are you reading at the moment on there? Yeah. Uh, so we, we my, my wife is a big reader, too. She, she has a master's in English lit. So between the two of us, we have about like a thousand books in the house. And, but they're spread all about. And in my, in, in my office are the signed editions, you know, all the books that I've gotten signed either by friends or by other authors. Um, a lot of stuff that I want to get to or hope to get to soon. A lot of my research books. So probably like two or three hundred books up with me. Just recently, uh, took an, t- took some advice from a friend and got little like uh, display racks for my books, the ones that I've written, so I can sort of like instead of having them tucked away in a shelf where I can't read them, to actually have them up somewhere displayed so that I can see them, which is actually a nice feeling because the warehouse is my seventh book. So uh, and and now with all the foreign editions that are coming out, like it's even more fun to to, to display those. If you were wondering that perhaps this was too niche already, I've been asked by listeners to get even more niche. So just let me quickly take you into what you're actually writing on or with. Yeah. Uh, Is it on a laptop? I have, uh, I I switch back and forth. I I love Dropbox. Dropbox is like my new favorite thing because I have a laptop for using around the house or for, you know, traveling. Uh, When I'm traveling like this, when when, when I'm visiting another country or I'm, I'm out of the city, I usually have an iPad. And then uh, I've got uh, a Mac uh, on my desk. So I, I tend to switch back and forth a lot between the three. And it's, it's, I, I've, I've slowly come to realize that I'm not someone who works really well with pen and paper. You know, like I used to buy a new notebook for every project yeah. and then take notes. And, but then I would fill up like 20 pages and then abandon it. So uh, what I've really, really started enjoying, and I spent a lot of the flight over doing this, is the, the, the new iPad with the iPen or the iPencil or whatever it's called. And uh, just being able to like write notes in the note-taking app and then sort of save them and refer back to it, that I like a lot because it's, it's sort of the mix between the technology stuff that I like but also feels a little bit more tactile with the, the handwriting. This might be quite a ridiculous question. I apologize if it is. Do you find the way, aside from you know using your iPen um, and being very physical, tactile, hands-on with it, do you find the way that the, you write is different across... You know, tapping your fingers on on an iPad or sitting there on your IKEA desk with a desktop. The uh, I, I tend to do my best work when I'm sort of home and sequestered because I, I I like I like working while I travel. I always feel pretty productive when I travel because there's not much else to do. But but there's something about being home and sort of in private that that I really like and is a lot more comfortable for me. Plus the the, the iPad keyboard is like really weirdly small and I'm still kind of getting used to it in a way. But, uh, you know, I was uh, a journalist years ago, and so I learned how to type really, really fast because it was a lot of either trying to meet deadlines or you're transcribing interviews as you're talking to someone on the phone. And, and so you have to. And that's uh, and I think that's the reason I kind of skew toward typing over writing by hand sometimes. Like writing by hand is fun for notes, but when it comes to the actual writing process, I just I, I, I type so quickly that it's just the best way to keep up with myself. Aside from the typing, you mentioned earlier on that you're quite a visual thinker with your whiteboard paint and, and your maps. At what point during your plotting process are you doing that side of your storytelling? Is it mainly before you, you've even 
started typing away your drawing maps you've already got a, a very visual sense of the way that your story is going to look it's it's usually pretty early on and I find that I need it before I can move forward. And and Warehouse is actually a really good example of that because it was imagining this sort of very big live-work facility that I kind of had no basis for because I was kind of creating it just out of thin air. And, and there were points where I just didn't know how to move the characters around because it was like, this is just too big of a place. And so I, I had to sit down and draw a map of the facility and actually sort of plot out, you know, where the dormitories in relation to the administration building and in relation to the, the the actual warehouse space itself. And once I had that, the whole thing really clicked for me because then I can see like, oh, now I know how to move people around. And it actually solved a couple of plot problems for me because there were things that I knew needed to happen that I didn't understand how they were going to happen. But once I saw the geography of it, it was like, oh, like this makes sense now. Now I can figure all of this out. How much sense would it make to a stranger, do you think, if I were to wander into a, into your attic midway through you writing a story? Is, is it just the rambling drawings of a, of a lunatic, or would it make some sense a, b- a, b- a bit, A bit on the lunatic side, for sure. Uh, the, the very nice thing that happens with the map is that uh, Transworld asked to see it and actually made a very nice version. Like they, they took my lunatic scribbled version and made a very, very uh, handsome version that they used in, in a promotional brochure to, to promote the book. So that I was really relieved about because I was afraid I was gonna give it to them and they were gonna look at it and say, yeah, we just can't figure this out. I have a four-year-old daughter and, and she is a little crazy person and, and I love her to death and she's great. And we have her in camp now and, and she goes to school so I've, I've got chunks of time during the day, but there's also uh, coming up is a week where she's not she'll have neither camp nor school. So I have her home with me all week, which means I'm just going to get nothing done because on one hand, she she demands a lot of my attention. But also I like spending time with her like she's a lot more fun than than anything else. So uh, mostly these days, it's whenever I can find the time, you know, so generally on a day that she's in school, what will happen is I'll wake up. I'll, I'll feed her breakfast. I'll take her to school. My wife will go to work. I'll usually go to the gym and then come back. And then I have like four or five hours to myself and try to get as much done as I can. Uh, lately, it's been a lot of busy work. You know, it's a lot of stuff for promo of the warehouse. It's a lot of other weird little things that I've been trying to do. And, you know, if, if, if I can, if I can find like two or three good hours to sort of work at a stretch, I'm really happy because I tend to work best in chunks. Like I like to have a couple of hours strung together, strung together at a time, but you know there are times where I feel like I I I have to meet my word count and I have to hit a deadline, and so if I only have twenty minutes, I only have twenty minutes. Talk me through that, those chunks then, if you can. You mentioned word count there. How do you know what you need to write when you sit down at your desk in your attic each day? I usually I, I try to I try to go chapter by chapter and what I'll do is I'll I'll finish a chapter and then I try to go back over it and kind of smooth it out a little bit. I don't like leaving things in the middle of a chapter. So generally what I'm aiming for is like finish a chapter, smooth it out if I have time, do another one if I have time, do another one and and see how many of those I can do in a row. And um you know, and uh, although if I'm working on a different project, like if it's a short story, I like to try to get the entire short story out at once, which takes a little bit more time depending on the length. But um, yeah, it's just leaving stuff in the middle always just kind of drives me nuts. Like I need to have some kind of feeling of completion before I move on to the next thing. This is your seventh novel you mentioned earlier? Yes. On? So 
you know, you're into the flow of it now. You kind of know how you need to work, what works best for you. Can you take me through a, a year in a writing routine? I, I know that's quite a big ask, but say January through January, you've mentioned word count, so I get the impression that you like to know what you need to do every day. You know, deadlines you said earlier on. Can you just take me through that year when you get the idea for a new story, when you'll start writing it, when that first draft's done, when it'll be handed in? Give me all of that if you can, Rob. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I tend to be a pretty fast writer, and I'll, I'll use warehouses as an example since that was the last one, and my process kind of changes as time goes on. But with the warehouse, uh, it's it's uh, 120,000 words approximately, and the first section, like the very first section processing, I think is like 16,000. And I had that done, and that was at that point I was looking for a new agent, and so I. I met this guy and and he asked to read it and he really liked it and he wanted to see more and I didn't really have much more at that point but in the time that I showed him that uh you know once I had sort of that artificial deadline in my head of he was waiting for it I I wrote the entire rest of the book in six months and so uh usually what I'll do is I'll I'll finish the draft and then I'll let it sit for at least two or three weeks just kind of like try to clear my head on it And then I usually go back over it three or four times until I feel like it's nice and tight and ready to go. And and always the one of those edits, not the last edit, usually the second to last edit is I do a backwards edit. So I'll start out at the end of the book and then work my way forward. And and I think what that does is uh, when you start out writing a book, you've got all this fresh energy and you're all excited. And then by the time you get to the end, things can kind of peter out a little bit. So I, I, I like to kind of invest a lot of that starting energy in the end and it really does make a difference seeing the story in reverse because sometimes it makes you think differently about how things are structured and it makes you want to move things around a little bit and uh and yeah so i mean most of my books i can usually write in far less than a year probably like six to eight months let me quickly cut in the backwards edit is an idea i've never heard before and it's a fantastic uh way of doing things i think how did you stumble upon that? I don't know. I, I I'm, I'm trying to remember now what the what the nexus point of that was. I think it was just it might have been someone suggested it. It might have been I stole that idea from someone. Uh, but it's just it was one of those things that once I started doing, I'm like, wow, this makes a ton of sense. So I'm constantly telling other people to do it because it really does make an incredible difference. And how much does it change? Uh, how, how much is your story changing when you are doing that backwards edit is, is it really clear what you've done wrong wrong how you can alter things I, not not humongous structural changes generally by that point i feel really good about where all the major points are but i do get a sense of i i can kind of see where i was lagging in my energy at, at the end points and 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 i've read books by people who you know uh friends of mine who who are looking for edits or, or who, who need beta readers and you know, you can kind of feel it. You can feel the energy dip a little bit because you kind of get this feeling of like, okay, I'm this close to the end. I just want to finish this book now. So uh, I, I think that really does well for sort of reversing that feeling. And how much has it changed the way that you start books? If you know when you finished your first draft of a novel that you're going to end up going back looking for when your energy's lagging, do you try and counter that, make that last job shorter by just getting it done early doors? I, I, tr- I try to be mindful of it going in. I, I try to be mindful of not letting myself rush too much when I get to the end because because I do get that feeling a lot where it's like I'm almost done with this thing. I just want to be done, and uh, and and you have to fight against that a little bit because I, I 
I always try to get as much down as I can. But I also try to understand, too, that like a, a draft is, you know, you just have to get the words down and then you can do anything you want with it, you know. And, and that's the, the hardest part is just getting that initial draft down. Like once that's there, you're pretty much good. Mention words. What is your word count day today, hopefully? Oh, God, uh, I don't know. It's usually, again, it depends on time. It depends on, you know, how far I am into it. It depends on my mood. Uh, some some days I just don't really feel like doing it, so I just don't force myself to. But uh, I, I think the most I did in a weekend was 25,000 words. Uh, but that was also before I had a kid and, you know, before I had responsibilities. Let me take you back then before you had the kid. Um, sorry, the kid. That's yeah. very impersonal of me. I apologize. No, it's fine. <laughs> that child. Um when you had the ability to, or the time to write 25,000 words, you've seven books in, how much have you learned about the way that you write best through those seven books? How has your writing routine changed o- over time? The the biggest thing I learned was that I need to outline, like sort of rigorously. Uh, my first novel took me like five <laughs> years to write, and, and it was a bit of a mess. And, and looking back on it now, I, I, I almost wish that I could have a bit of a do-over on it. So I learned that I need a, a very strong roadmap, which I may diverge from or, or in the writing may find something changes, but, but I need something to start with that, that's just sort of everything laid out. Um, I've, I've, I've sort of gotten a better understanding of the mechanics. Uh, you know, I, I worked with James Patterson. I did a novella with him. And just from that, learned a lot about storytelling and structure and sort of momentum, which is something that is really important that I think some writers need to think more about is just that 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 ability to sort of like grab your reader by by the collar and just kind of pull them through a story you know it's like that readability kind of feeling where it's like you just have to keep on you need one more chapter before you go to bed and then you realize it's like three o'clock in the morning like that's something that you can do in your writing it's just finding that balance between you know the artistic prose and sort of the mechanical getting things going so so as time has gone on i've definitely figured out how to sort of sharpen my writing and figure out how to how to add that readability quotient while staying true to myself as a writer. What is the secret to that that you've learned so far? What's the the secret in getting the mechanics of the book down on a page without the reader being aware of the fact that you're doing it? I've become a big fan of short chapters. Uh, I think short chapters and and a lot of section breaks are really good because they give a reader a sense of accomplishment. And if you know you can read a chapter relatively quickly, then you're gonna have this feeling like, oh, well, I'll just read another one, and then I'll just read another one, and it just goes on and on. Uh, not to say I won't write a really long chapter or dwell if I feel like it's necessary, but you know, there's something to be said for just moving the story along and not dawdling. And, and I think, you know, I, I used to sort of get wrapped up in sort of a, sort of the spirit of a scene or, or I used to get a little too precious about what was going on with, with the characters and sometimes you really just have to move things along because if you're moving things along the reader will follow you. With that how much do you think about the actual words that are going down on the page? What word is coming after the one you've just wrote? You know that's that's interesting because I you know, I'm working on my next book now and it's almost like you write a novel in a fugue state and then, you know, you go to do it again and you're like, I, I don't know how I did this. I don't know how anyone does this because it seems literally impossible. So uh, there, there, there's a bit of it that almost feels intangible. Uh, there's also an element that as, as, a, as a former journalist, you know, they really teach you to write to like a third or a fourth grade level. 
the idea being that your your stories need to be accessible to a wide reading audience. And so uh, n- not to say that I'm writing down to that level in my books or that I'm writing or that I'm condescending to the reader, but I do think clear prose is really useful in the sense of, you know, I, I, I'm not a flowery guy. So if I wrote flowery prose, it would probably sound a little silly. And some people are very good at that. But I, I sort of, I appreciate this sort of like workmanlike, straightforward, you know, keep the reader in the story and keep the reader engaged and don't pile too much on top of them. Challenge them and have some fun with them, but don't go nuts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We are well into the 70s now in terms of authors that we've had on the show. Writers that have shared some of the secrets of their success, giving you little tips, advice and tidbits to help your working day. And if any of those have really influenced the way that you tell your stories, if they've helped your creativity. I'd love for you to say thanks by helping this show, if you can. If you want to do that, all you need to do is uh, pledge a couple of dollars every month. That's all it takes to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, it just helps us keep ticking over. It helps us bring you episodes with authors as frequently as you can, pretty much because it helps me get to the interview place it helps me buy who i'm chatting to the author a a coffee or maybe a beer if that's where we're chatting you also get rewarded for pledging as well you can get badges you can get bookmarks Uh, there's more merch on there you get the chance to have your own tailor-made episodes uh, filled with just the questions that you have asked the authors you'll be one of the only ones that can hear the answers to get involved with that and to help support the show Uh, If you can, please do pledge just a couple of dollars a month over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You have no idea how much it it goes towards helping us bring you this show uh, as frequently as we can. So if you love writing tips, if you love hearing from the most successful authors around, if you want to get help as often as possible uh, to aid with your writing, that's what you need to do. 
if you can, send a couple of dollars a month to us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Hi, I'm Sherry LaPena and I'm the author of Someone We Know, which is out now. And my writing tip is give yourself permission to write badly so that you don't get stuck. I find when I'm not writing well, I just keep writing. And then if I go back and read it, I'll find the kernel of something that's good there. And then I'll work with that and I'll, I'll make it better. So I think the problem with writer's block is that people often feel that it has to be perfect when it goes down to the page. And that's simply not the case. So I think if you want to write a book, just start writing and give yourself permission to write badly so that you can improve. Right, let's get back into it uh, with this week's guest, Rob Hart on Writer's Routine, talking about his brand new book, The Warehouse, which is dystopian fiction. Remember a a few years ago, kind of the Hunger Game times, we were in a real like boom period for dystopian fiction. It's kind of died down a little bit and we're through the other end, Uh, but there's still quite a lot out there. So we talked to Rob about that choice of genre and how he made sure that his novel uh, is different from the other dystopian books that you can find on the shelves. Uh, We also chat about the three characters that really drive his story and how he got the right voice to tell each of their tales. Uh, And we pick things up talking about how he got that very first idea for the warehouse. Uh, How did it present itself to him? So I read this article in 2012 by a journalist named Mac McClelland. It was in Mother Jones, and it was called I Was a Warehouse Wage Slave. And and she had gotten a job in a fulfillment center and wrote about just how terrible the conditions were, but also how people were sort of lined up around the block for these jobs because they set up in economically depressed areas where, you know, they're the only game in town, so they can give you a crappy job with low pay and and poor benefits and and terrible conditions because what else are you going to do? Otherwise, you're unemployed. And I read that article and I thought, there is a book here. And I filed it away. And and so every time I get an idea that I think has legs, I create a Google Doc. And that Google Doc becomes sort of a repository for links and notes and stray thoughts and, and just whatever I think might be useful. And so over the years, the warehouse doc just kept on getting bigger and bigger. I think I have like 80 pages just of links. And anytime I read a story that I thought was even tangentially related, I would just drop something in there and just be like, so, so I can go back and refer to it. And it just, it, it, it almost like haunted me, you know, like it just kept on poking at me. And then finally one day I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm smart enough to write this. I don't know if I'm a good enough writer to write this, but if I don't write this now, someone else is going to get to it before me. So I just out of necessity, I, I sort of pushed myself into writing it. And, and it was a book that I thought was, was, going to be unpublishable and and i was proven very wrong (laughs) so what happened then you've got this necessity to get this story down how did you take the article and the concept of uh, a warehouse where people are forced to work and make it into a, a a readable novel where did you start with that kernel of the idea it was it was a lot of stops and starts i mean again it was uh I read that article in 2012 and was sort of passively working on it since then. And it was always something that I would kind of poke at. I think I tried to write it like three or four times and, and it just wasn't the right time for me and, and it wasn't really coming together. The The thing that really clicked for me and it was, it was a very uh, significant moment was the book has two narrative perspectives, or at least it started with two narrative perspectives, uh, Paxton and Zinnia, who are both employees in one of these live work facilities. 
And the story just wasn't clicking for me. And it wasn't until I added the third. Uh, the third is Gibson Wells, who is the CEO of this company, uh, that I finally kind of found my way in. And, and the reason for that is because the company is so big that it's practically a character, so it needed someone to represent it. And it, Gibson is, is basically, he, he's dying, which you find out in the first line of the book, mm-hmm. so it's not a spoiler. And he's basically using his time left on Earth to litigate his history uh, in, in creating this gigantic, like, you know, behemoth of a company. And so once his voice was in there to serve as sort of like a counterweight to the other two, all of a sudden it made sense. And, and, and it started coming together pretty quickly after that. Let me just push you on uh, the process of the plot for a second. Yeah. You mentioned uh, earlier on outlining how having a, a very clear idea of what's going to happen really helps the way that you tell stories. Before you sat down to properly write this thing, how much did you know about the plot? I had most of it down before I before I started writing in earnest. Uh, I, I mean, I, again, over the years, just kept on sort of like playing with the outline and, and poking at it and moving things around. And because it was just, it was a hard book to crack. It's complicated because there are a lot of moving parts. And there are a few things that kind of came in as I was writing it, but but not a whole lot. Um, but I just remember, <laughs> I mean, uh, there were points where during the outlining process, I thought I was going to lose my mind, where I was like literally like color coding the different sections based on the, the, the narrative perspective and just trying to keep everything straight and sorted. And it was just, it was kind of a beast. I very rarely do this but it's just because the plot is so so complex and uh, and I don't, I don't i don't want to give away too much so i'm gonna let you kind of do that sure uh just uh, uh from what you said so far idly take us through the idea of the story as much as you can yeah so uh so the warehouse is is roughly like 1984 except except instead of big brother it's big business and the idea is that this this one company takes over the uh, the American retail economy and then builds these live work facilities, sort of like Foxconn in Asia, where you know you you work there but you also live there in dormitory housing, and because you live there, the conditions are not great, and it's just it's not a fun place to be. So it's it's following the three characters, uh, Paxson and Zinnia, who are employees of the company. Paxson's a security guard. Zinnia is a corporate spy who is trying to sort of suss something out about the company and, and realizes that Paxton, as a security guard, will be useful. And then Gibson is sort of telling this story about his life and, and founding this company. And, and these three characters are intersecting in a very difficult way by the end of the book. When you do have this, this high concept book with a lot going on, and you're outlining it so clearly before, how much are you forcing through ideas of what you want to happen and how much of it is growing organically from the three characters? You know, I I really benefited from having like a couple of years of sort of passive work on this where I just had time to just kind of like turn it over in my head. And, you know, the book itself, you know, I, I say that I wrote the majority of it in six months, which I think a lot of people would say, wow, that's really fast. I'm like, yeah, but like, I was working on it for seven years. So, so, so much of it was just sort of in my head by that point. And, uh, you know, just turning it over and over again. And, and I look back at, at how I originally conceived of the book and some of the ideas that I had in the beginning, and I realized how different they were and, and how it really took me that time to sort of, and again, because it was such a big book, it, it just, it needed that time to percolate. Like, this is not a book that I could have banged out in a year. Do you remember those moments when ideas were coming and when they were changing those 
light bulb moments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, like after after I figured out that I needed Gibson in the story, that was a real significant change, and, and things really started clicking for that. And it was it was when I really I, I had previous to this I had written a series uh, about an amateur private detective, and so that was a five book series. And it was really too like once I had gotten close to finishing that series. I, I, I was able to sort of let go of that because that's the thing that I was living inside. I was writing a five-book series. I was doing a book a year. It was a lot. And once I finished the last book, all of a sudden it was like, oh, like I have just headspace now. You know, like I don't have to live with this other character in his voice anymore. Like I can start playing in other sandboxes. And so there was a real freedom to that. And, and so the timing was just right in the sense that I, I was sort of figuring out the story around the same time that I had all this free time to finally write again. And uh, yeah, then it then it really just came together. The moment that you realised you needed Gibson, where did that come from? Were you sat there wrangling with your own mind, like, uh, I can't get this done, what needs to happen? And then did it suddenly uh, appear? Or What happened was uh, I read the, the autobiography of, of Sam Walton, who founded Walmart in the 1960s. And, and that was it for me. I... I so the book, there's a little bit of Amazon in the book, obviously, but most of my research was into Walmart because Amazon's a very secretive company. They're, they're, they're a relatively new company in the grand scale of the, the economy, so there's not a ton of information available on them, whereas Walmart's been around since the 60s, and, and a couple of books have been written about the company that, that are really very good. And, and I read his autobiography, and it, it was, it was kind of nefarious, because this is a guy who, you know, very down-home, Southern American, you know, good old boy, sort of, you know, like, we're a family, and my, my, my company is my family, and we work real hard, and we get the job done. And this is the guy who, when the federal minimum wage law was passed in America, he split up his, 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 all the Walmarts into separate entities because he didn't want to have to pay his workers minimum wage, which is not a nice way to treat your family. So it was it was once I read that and just sort of the, the 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 gross feeling I had at the end of that book, because it's really also there's something really incredibly endearing about his voice. And there's something it seems like, wow, this is a really nice guy who created this company that does terrible things to people. So that that was sort of the uh, that was probably the biggest light bulb. All three of them, I think, are degree aspects of my own personality. You know, uh, Paxton is sort of the company man. Like he he's he's a little naive, and 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 he's the go along to get along guy who will sort of not raise a fuss and will do what he's told. Which you know we all kind of have a little bit of that in us. Uh, Zinnia is a little bit more like I I want to be, which is she's a little bit more acerbic and she kind of. She, she, she sees through the nonsense a little bit more. And then Gibson is just, you know, a manifestation of my ego where, you know, he's one of those characters that, you know, he, he doesn't know he's a villain. He, he thinks that he's done this incredible thing, that he built this huge company and he dominated the economy and, he, and he's fixing the planet because they're adopting green initiatives and they're doing all this great stuff. And uh, so for him, it was very much tapping into my own confidence, which as a writer is sometimes, you know, a difficult thing to do. But we all have it. We all have a little bit of an ego. And it was trying to sort of find that and bring it out a little bit. How hard is it when you're writing a villain who doesn't know he's a villain to kind of stay away from those villain tropes that you find in stories? 
it was it was a challenge. Uh, Gibson was a huge challenge because I'm I'm a very anti-establishment, anti-capitalism kind of guy, and so now I'm writing from the perspective who is very much establishment and pro-capitalism, and so part of it is just kind of it, it's hard because you have to find that voice, but you want it to be genuine. You don't want it to be sort of a parody, and you, you don't want it to sort of be too too extreme. And so I, I was kind of just trying to tap into the humanity of it. Like why, and, and, and the first, the, I think his second chapter is about him and his second narrative chapter is about him and his, his family and, and how he grew up. And it's obviously a very sort of rosy hued view, but I think it gives you a sense of why he became the person he was. And so that, that kind of thing I think is good and grounding for a reader where you can kind of see where they're coming from because it's easy to just say like, oh, this is just a guy who wants to be rich, you know, like, because everyone wants to be rich. That's not significant. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of show what kind of instilled those values in him, then there's something a little bit more to identify with. So it's kind of, it's breaking down the idea that we think we have of these characters and, and showing the emotions and the thought behind them. Yeah, yeah. Now, and you kind of spoke about the first line already, how much do you think about the first sentence of a book? I, I it's it's, it's got to grab you. I, I always I, I always kind of labor over them a little bit, and and they. This one came to me like like once I once I committed to writing Gibson, and I knew that Gibson was the the, the, the inciting incident of the book was going to be him dying, uh, or at least announcing to the world that he was dying because you know again he's this guy who's worth three hundred billion dollars and, and is this corporate giant like he's like practically a messianic figure like him dying is is a. a huge change to the economy um so i thought just while i'm dying is just a great sort of catchy grabby first sentence and uh because it really gets to his sort of like straightforward kind of down home voice and uh yeah it's just opening lines are are they're so hard and i feel like once they come to you and you get them it's just great because you really really want to grab that reader like right off the bat was that in rewriting had you had you a separate first line um before you realized well i'm dying what it should be no i think i had that one pretty early on yeah i think uh i i started to write gibson and i was like well this is going to be it's going to open with his announcement and i'm like well this is how this guy would do it you know obviously i was inspired by books like fahrenheit 451 in 1984 and handmaid's tale and so I knew I wanted to play in that sandbox, but, you know, in a way that was sort of, but, but I also wanted to do my own thing. Uh, one of the things I did try to be really mindful of is I didn't want the book to be about the rebels, you know, because I feel like these stories are typically told from the perspective of the people who are rebelling against the system. And I thought, you know, I'm much more interested, especially in an environment like this, to just stick with the blue collar workers and the people who are like, like the cogs inside the machine. And and we actually do meet some of the rebel characters later in the book, and, and they're kind of off doing their own thing. But, you know, I, I, I was much more interested in starting with characters who were basically towing the company line and then sort of slowly bring them around to that feeling of like, oh, like, this is not okay. We talked quite extensively at the start about your editing process and how much, you know, you're of the, the, the quite common thought that just get that first draft done. Because this was quite hard for you to start and, and to get into, you've talked about how it was a labor of love for years and years and years. How was the edit when you had to kind of tidy things up? The editing was was not 
terrible. I, I remember feeling pretty good about the process because, again, like I'll go through it three or four times, and those three or four times felt relatively comfortable. I mean, I did also have a bit of a breakdown when I sent it to my agent. Um, I, I was in Singapore. Uh, my wife was on a study abroad program with her master's degree, and so. I tagged along because they had a really nice partner rate where I can just like be on the plane and then hang out. And and it was great. I, I can't really sleep on planes. So it was 17 hours of flight time. And then just like three days of me wandering around the, the, the city with like, you know, her being stuck in school. And I knew that I would get a ton of work done. I knew I was almost finished with the book. So I was like, all right, you know, this is what I'll do. And I remember sitting in a cafe in Singapore and, and sending him the book. Uh, my agent and just apologizing and i'm like this thing is a mess i just i i, I it doesn't work but i i'm you wanted to see pages and i'm at the point now where i just need an outside opinion like like do we abandon this and try something else and he's like i'm sure it'll be fine i'm sure it'll be fine and uh and i get an email back from him like a week or two later he's like so i have some notes for you but it's the least amount of notes i've ever asked for anyone and <laughs> This was the first project we were working on together, so I'm thinking, like, do I have a bad agent? <laughs> and uh, and and no, like he he had very insightful notes. Uh, him and his uh, and his assistant both read it, and they they were super excited about it, and they were like, this this has a ton of potential. I'm like, okay, guys, whatever. Um, and, and part of that is is I'm just very hard on myself, and I have a hard time seeing past the things that I could make better, or my own mistakes. And uh, but yeah, that, then it did crazy business, and I remember. Both Bill Scott Kerr here at Transworld and and Julian Pevia, my my U.S. editor, when they they sat down and they they kind of wanted to work in tandem a little bit on the edits, and they're both brilliant, so of course you know great idea, and they both kind of came around to like you know the story doesn't even start to like page one hundred, but like we don't even have a lot of for you to cut in the beginning because it's all like really good and tight, so that made me feel really good. When you sent it to your agent, aside from the overwhelming excitement what were the little tweaks that they wanted to change oh god um i'm trying to remember there were uh, because we we did some stuff with him and then and then we did some stuff with the editors after it got picked up it was it was basically just kind of fleshing out a little bit of the world building because there was so much to the geography and so much of the characters moving around that there were a few points where they're like, well, this isn't clear or this needs to be amped up or this needs to just it, it was a lot of clarity stuff. So so making sure the reader is not getting lost, like there were no big structural changes ever, uh, but there were, you know, a couple of points where. You know, like uh, Julian uh, wanted Zinnia to have a little bit more agency in the beginning of the book because it's like, you know, she says that she's really, really good at her job, but we don't see her being good at her job until halfway through. So let's put something in earlier on to sort of start shoring that up and make sure readers get that sense. So it was it was mostly it it was housekeeping stuff, you know, like they didn't ask for any big structural changes, which was really nice. How was it writing this uh, aside from? Sorry, apart from your Ash McKenna series where you've got five and you've got this big storyline that's ranging across all five novels and then you've got this. How, how was it writing those two very distinctive sorts of books? It is it is the best. I only want to do standalones from <laughs> now on. Uh, I, I, like, I like writing series books. They're really cool. Uh, the Ash books were very much, they're about a kid who's growing up and, and they were very much me working out some stuff about growing up. And there was something really rewarding about following that book, that, that character over five books, but you also get to the fifth book and you feel like you're inviting people to a Tupperware party where you kind of see those diminishing returns 
you know, some people get really excited and they stick with you and they read every book. And, and of course, like my mom reads every book. But but most people, I mean, there are people who like I've known my entire life and I consider really good friends. They're like, well, I started the first one. I'm like, cool. Like, no worries. I mean, as long as you bought them, I don't care. But, you know, it's 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 hard to expect people to read a new book every year in a series because there are so many demands in our attention. Uh, you know, I mean, the the new American pastime is binge watching. I mean, I don't know how much that's reflected here, but it feels like that's all anyone is doing. Like, there's so there's too much television, like literally too much. There are a lot of good books coming out. There are a lot of great things that you can do with your life that are not sitting and reading because reading is so it's so intimate and you can't do anything else while you read. Like you can binge watch a TV show and you can do busy work. You can, you can ride in a car and listen to a new album. But if you're just reading a book, you're reading a book, you're not doing anything else. So asking for that kind of commitment from people, it's a lot. And, you know, doing one big book like every two or three years, like, yeah, I'll do that for a little while. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Rob uh, for spending the time chatting to me. He had a very busy day. He kind of sent his wife and his daughter out on a tour uh, around London because he was only in the city for a few weeks. He had quite a few interviews with, you know, a, a, a strange assortment uh, of newspapers and radio stations and for him to fit us in that I really do appreciate it so thank you as well to Tom Hill for sorting that out you can find out loads more about his book over at writersroutine.com while you're there one of the best places for you to get in contact with the show if you want to say how we've helped you if you want to just let me know something maybe you want to give me some pointers for authors that you really want to hear from writer's routine is the place to go you can also listen to all the episodes that we've done so far over 70 of them are there as well and if any of the authors that we've chatted to for over 70 episodes have helped the way that you tell your stories uh, please do say thanks with just a couple of dollars a month over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine uh, we've got no show next week uh, I just need a, a little bit of a break because I'm off on holiday but then I'll be back the week after where we will be talking to uh, a fantastic Irish kind of crime kind of thriller writer hard to pinpoint exactly the genre she writes but she does tell fantastic stories and she's done it prolifically as well so make sure you're here in a couple of weeks where we'll be chatting to sheila o'flanagan on writer's routine i will see you then bye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 